Hi, this is about immigrant women in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. For immigrant women living in ethnic neighborhoods throughout the Northeast, working was often a necessity. Older women tended to help out the family by taking in boarders, which helped solve the dilemma of families caught between low-wage jobs and high urban rents. It also helped out the people who needed places to stay, meeting their housing needs. Among urban immigrants, most people spent some part of their lives living with non-relatives, either as boarders when young and single, or in families that took in boarders themselves. As many as between 25 and 50 percent of working-class families had others living with them at some point in time. It was hard work to care for boarders, required cleaning, laundry, shopping, cooking, often in very close quarters, sometimes as many as five or six people living in two rooms, if you can imagine. Where possible, women also took in homework, making garments or other items like paper flowers or buttons on a piecework basis. Though as the century progressed, homework yielded to factory production, except in the garment, garment industry. Different cities offered different opportunities for domestic or factory work, making such things as boxes, bread, or textiles. Whether or not women could add to the, their family's income, they learned the skills of consumers in order to stretch the family resources as far as possible. Domestic work was a most common job available for young immigrant women, and this was largely an urban phenomenon. Irish and Scandinavian women dominated domestic work. These were jobs which constantly emphasized their subordination in both mat material and symbolic ways. They lived in their employer's homes, either in a small back room or in an attic space, maybe had one afternoon off a week. Their hours were indefinite. In other words, they were on call 24 hours a day, except on the one afternoon that they had off, and even that could be taken away if the employer deemed necessary. They ate in the kitchen after their employers were done, and uh, that they, if when they went outside of that house, they also found that there were other workers who looked down on them for being live-in domestics. Young immigrant women also found factory employment in a wide variety of low-skilled jobs, often in industries that called upon traditional female skills, such as garment making, tex textile manufacturing, food production or processing, and as laundry workers. Labor organizing offered these women some hopes, an alternative possibility like the Knights of Labor, which was first organized in the 1870s, which has, an, in, by the 1880s, expanded its purpose and called for equal pay for equal work and actively recruited women to join locals and serve as organizers for the Knights of Labor. Unfortunately, the Knights of Labor rapidly declined by the late 1880s. In the early 20th century, labor activism came largely through the industry that employed the largest number of women, which was the garment industry. The International Ladies Garment Workers Union, the ILGWU, recruited thousands of young women, largely Jewish and Italian immigrant women, who worked in shirtwaist factories throughout the Northeast. There was a major strike action among the shirtwaist workers in 1909 and early 1910. It's called the Uprising of the 20,000, although some scholars say that there were as many as 30,000 young women who walked off the job, demanding a 10-hour day and higher wages, recognition of the union, and improved workplace conditions, 
particularly improved health and safety standards, which is what led them to organize to begin with. The garment strike in 1909 ends early in 1910 with the smaller shops negotiating with the union, but the larger shops refusing to do so, and in those places, conditions remained much the same. Those conditions ultimately resulted in the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, which um, many people might be familiar with. On the 25th of March, 1911, it was a spectacularly sad event. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was one of those large factories that had not negotiated with the IGLWU. It's a factory that is located in Manhattan, sort of near Washington Square. It's actually at Green and Washington Place. The building still exists, and there's a plaque actually outside of it. But the factory was on the 8th and 9th floor of the building. And at the end of a shift, about 500 people were working that day, and a fire breaks out, which ultimately resulted in the deaths of 146 people. 126 of them were women, most of them Jewish and um, Italian immigrants. 20 men, those were largely supervisors um, on the floor. 99 of those who died died inside the factory from smoke inhalation and being cr crushed to death as they tried to escape the factory. 47 died plunging to their deaths by breaking out the windows and jumping from the, uh, from the eight, ninth, eighth or ninth story of, these, of this building. The results of this in New York led to a New York State investigation and passage of health and safety standards requiring such simple things as fire escapes and fire doors in factories, as well as regular inspections for how those safety standards were being um, handled. In the days after the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, there were mass memorials held, sponsored in part by the Women's Trade Union League, which was a group of immigrant and working-class women who were trying to support working-class women's needs. And there was a mass funeral which attracted some 120,000 people in New York. Work issues were not primarily um, alone in the experience of immigrant women in the United States. There was also great concern by a number of uh, reformers in the early 20th century who were part of the progressive reform movement and were concerned about education. They asked three basic questions. They asked what, what programs should be developed for immigrant women, but we also have to consider how immigrant women responded to those programs and what kinds of programs did immigrant women themselves um, participate in within their own community. Progressive educators believed that all educational programs should be adapted to meet the needs and capabilities of different populations, understanding that you know, not every child was developing in the same way, and not every group, not every community um, came to school as equally prepared. So consequently, progressive educators designed programs for immigrant women that reflected their largely middle-class Protestant judgment of the needs and capabilities of immigrant women in general, um, of women in general, and of immigrant women in particular. Um, this 
goes to some things that you will have read in, in the book, as well as um, things that we touched upon in class last Wednesday, that women's, uh, that, that immigrants were seen as, as somehow morally, culturally, and intellectually inferior. And if left un-Americanized, this would destroy the American city, the American way of life, and, and things like this. And a lot of sexism, as well as nativism, influenced how educators during the progressive era handled ideas of immigrant women's educational needs. They saw bookishness as a bad sign for immigrant women. And uh, so the education of immigrant women was seen to be appropriate, according to the progressive reformers, that it would be social and vocational rather than academic or intellectual. And they saw that as a means of enhancing her performance of her role as housewife and mother, which would be beneficial to the family and society as a whole. The most widely acclaimed program instituted for immigrant women in public schools in, the, in this time was home economics, which included cooking, sewing, laundering, house cleaning, nutrition, child care, hygiene, and a timid but persistent approach to sex education. Progressive educational reformers favored home economics because it was suited to the laboratory or project method which they strongly believed related to the real life of family and community. Home economic instruction was a means of Americanization and social control as well. It could be used as a means of keeping immigrant women and their families, quote-unquote, in their place, i.e., lower socioeconomic classes. They were taught to budget carefully, to cook with inexpensive materials and that kind of thing, and um, this was seen as perfect vocational training for immigrant girls and women, appropriate for home as well as low-paying jobs. Home economics dominated the education of immigrant women in the settlement houses, church programs, home teacher programs, vocational programs, and public schools. Men had classes that taught them trades, citizenship, English clubs, they had debating societies, and athletics. But this was not what the type of education that women received. When men were taught, immigrant men were, were learning to read, they read such things. I wash my hands, I sharpen my pencil, I read a book, I come into the room, I go out of the room. Women, immigrant women, learn to read, I wash my hands, I wash the dishes, I set the table, I sweep the floor, I dust the furniture. So if you notice, men were washing their hands because hygiene was important to both, um, but they were reading a book and going into room and out of the room, which suggests some level of activity. Women were all working within the home, washing the dishes, setting the table, sweeping the floor, and so forth. You get the idea here. Now, the reaction of immigrant women varied. There was often no clear kind of reaction from the first and second generation because they were not exposed to this, so women in the late 19th century didn't face the same kind of thing. Um, girls were not commonly, in some immigrant families, not allowed to go to school, or they were not stopped from dropping out. Now this varied within communities, um, 
but uh, some of them felt ashamed that they were, you know, didn't want to be in school because they were over age of what um, the traditional um, American students were. Immigrant parents and daughters were far from unanimous in their support of education that was social and vocational rather than academic. Some demanded equal education for boys and girls, um, but that wasn't the opportunities offered to them. Vocational education was. And that vocational education often failed to meet the needs, the true needs of immigrant women, especially the younger women, because this type of vocational education through the home economics and focused on domestic skills and not practical for women working or trying to find industrial jobs. Despite these inadequacies, immigrant women learned English and many acquired a broad general education as well as becoming literate for the first time. Most adult immigrants achieved this on their own or through formal and informal instruction within their own ethnic community. Self-education of immigrant women differed from that provided by American educators because the self-education was often carried out in the native tongue, it incorporated into the cultural heritage of the old country, and grew out of a realistic and not stereotyped view of immigrant women. So you get these this, this variation in the education. Um, if you're interested in exploring this idea a little more, there are some some autobiographies that you can find of women who um, were educated, such as Mary Anton, who um, I believe the title of her book is The Promised Land, which was published in 1912. But there are other autobiographies and other um, types of things which explore the experience of women in industry and in um, various social groups and, and within um, education. Thank you very much.